this was one of my favorite podcasts and conversations that I have had in a very long time. And so we have Troy Jones with us joining today for the podcast. And Troy is the preeminent speed coach in America. He has worked with literally the world's absolute best athletes and made them even better. And we're talking about a range of sports from NHL, NFL, now newly into the MLB. And we get into that a little bit as well. And what he's going to teach you is very specific drills, a very specific mindset that one should have when trying to make your athletes faster and really the ability to gain buy-in with your patient regardless of level, whether they be amateur athlete all the way, obviously, to the highest levels of the pros. Troy got his start here in Baltimore. And if you've rehabbed an athlete in Baltimore, you have rehabbed an athlete that has been touched by the knowledge of Troy Jones. And so whether he was training them years and years ago when he was his home base was Baltimore or whether their trainer studied under Troy, there is most likely a very high chance that Troy Jones had an impact on the athletic development of nearly every single athlete in this area. And now he's moved down to House of Athlete down in Weston, Florida, where he is in charge of their entire speed and development programming. And they work with the NFL's brightest athletes, the absolute best athletes on the planet. He works with professional fighters, and like I mentioned, into the NHL and to baseball. And he brings a very unique outlook as to how to structure a program, how to really dive into the nuances of every single drill. And you're going to hear all of that and way more in this coming podcast. So I'm really excited to hear from everyone um, what they loved, what they thought we could have done better. As always, you can reach me, Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at truesports.com. PT.com, and that's whether you want to join us at True Sports as a sports physical therapist. We're always looking um, for the brightest and the best, or you just want to let me know what you think about the pod, what I could do better, um, or what you want me to double down on. You can also reach us on Instagram at True Sports PT. Always looking for feedback, always looking to grow, always looking to improve. Um, you can also shoot Troy Jones um, a DM. He's at Coach. Troy Jones on Instagram. Uh, you can also find them online um, at coachtroyjones.com. Easy enough. So make sure you reach out to him. So much to learn. Look forward to hearing from you guys. Hope this makes you a little bit better clinician. And without further ado, here is Troy Jones. Welcome back to the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. Every once in a while, I do a pod like this. And I'm starstruck by the guy sitting across from me. So I'm excited to have Troy Jones with us. Troy is speed coach, performance coach, strength coach to the world's absolute best athletes. That is not the way you would describe yourself. That's the way I'm describing you. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm also telling you to talk into that mic. Get closer and talk into that mic. Okay. Um, Here's what I want to start with because I want to dive right in because your time is super valuable and all the sports PTs that are listening here, time is super valuable. I think as a profession, sports physical therapists struggle with the very specific question that I'm about to ask you, and that is, how do you teach speed? Good question. Um, one of the, first, in order to teach speed, you have to understand that speed is a skill. 
Um, you hear all the cliches that we're born fast and we have certain abilities. And yeah, there's some merit to that. There's a lot of truth to that, but there's always room for improvement. And, and you can get an athlete, like to use a number system, one, two, and three. You can get a one to a two. You can get a two to a three, but there is a way to improve that. But it begins with first and foremost of just exposing what that athletes are weak at within the realm of how they function and how they apply force. Um, what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And what do you expose them to when you identify those issues? And one of the things that helps me the most to answer your questions is our assessment protocols. It's that simple. What we assess for in the very beginning begins to dictate our plan on how we introduce that athlete to where his weaknesses are whether it's acceleration, whether it's transition, whether it's max velocity. And then we stay within that bucket once we find that exposure or once we find that issue and expose them to that more often than the traditional three times a week, this is what we stay in in that model. We, you know, we, we stay within the model. We give them, let's say, for example, we give a guy max velocity or if we do a short, a short to long program where we start acceleration and early on in the week, transition in the middle of the week and max velocity towards the end, we might say, okay, let's expose him to two acceleration models or two acceleration days at one max V, just so he can be exposed to what he needs to improve on. So basically, finding out and identifying where their issues are and then developing a plan around it, just that simple, but just making sure your assessment protocols are up to speed to solve that problem. Uh, okay, great answer. Because it sounds like you get super specific yes. with with the way you approach training these athletes um, and the way you approach just making them better. So I love to hear that because we'd much rather be a sniper than a carpet bomb. Absolutely. Now, you broke up speed into kind of three different phases. Yes. Talk to me about those. Break those down for me. To simplify everything for me, I do things in threes. Okay. Always done that way because uh, I try to be as simple to it as much as I possibly can. So when I look at speed, and let's look at the 40 as a model and being able to teach that, because that's the quote unquote, the sexy thing that everybody likes to talk about. So understanding first and foremost, the phases that occur within a 40 yard dash is acceleration, early acceleration, transition, and max V. But then determining how long do you stay in each phase based on the athlete's abilities of what they like to do. If you have a max velocity guy that really likes to get up and cycle, Okay, then you have to say, okay, I need to expose this guy to more of horizontal forces being able to generate force. That needs to also transfer into the weight room to fit that dynamic or fit that what he needs to be exposed to based on what the force velocity curve is. So when and how we, and this might be getting ahead of everything, but how we first and foremost, remember I said we determine on our assessment based on what type of force what type of natural forces does this athlete generate and how does he generate force? We use force plates. We use acceleration profiling. So when we start seeing, okay, this guy needs more transition work, to me, which transition work is power. So how well does he produce power, which is speed, you know, what speed equals um, velocity, so on and so on. I want to get into that. Uh, get into it. Get, get into, into it, whatever you want. I told you, you're, <laughs> you got an educated audience, but, but you have an educated audience, I'd say more strength and conditioning i'd say more rehab mm -hmm. i think this speed world is where we're lacking and, and I'll, I'll pull it out of you and, and really just just in, just educate me because god knows i'm here to learn and this was a massive missing game in my rehab repertoire like i, I didn't know the the speed mechanics i didn't know how to teach speed mm -hmm. i'm still trying to learn that we don't get that in graduate school so 
So dig in is what okay. I'm saying. So, so you have j- just to kind of circle back, you got these three phases. You have acceleration, transition, max velocity. Yes. Right. And so you're putting through these athletes through an assessment and you're going to determine, Hey, where does my guy like to live? And wherever he likes to live, I'm going to fill in the gaps. And Correct. Say, okay. That's and a great say, analogy. And say, so he's, he's a max V guy. I'm going to put him into, I want to, I got to work on his transition. Here's transition. how I'm going to work on his transition. Or, you know what, his axel, the beginning acceleration phase, that sucked. Let me live there. Right. Okay, so we can bring him all up to par. Okay, so right. you don't have force plates. There was a time, Troy. Uh, you look like you've been training for a little bit. Yeah, I've been training 30 years. There was, <laughs> there was some time. And we had none of this stuff back then. Okay, so, <laughs> so let's say 15 years ago. You're, you're working um, up in Baltimore which is how I know you, mm-hmm. you don't have all these bells and whistles of House of Athlete. How do, you, how do you identify where an athlete wants to live and where you can fill in the gaps? Stopwatch is our best friend okay. and our eyes. What we saw and how we began to break dance based on what we would see and video. So we would video and we would do tests. Our tests were maybe short acceleration tests of 10 yards. Okay. We used a stopwatch. We would test them in uh, flying 10s for max velocity. And then when we would st- after we'd look at those times and we look at where, you know, we'll see if he's weak in that first 10, where would they need to focus on that? Where, where within that first 10, where would the focus actually be? Is it early excel? Because early excel for me is the first three steps. Transition, when you start getting from steps three to, to 10, to me is transition. When I begin to lay out that athlete's progression over the course of eight weeks, the stopwatch would be my best friend in documenting my times to make sure I'm progressing them in the right direction. Um, If his max velocity time was off the chart, I would spend more time in the weight room and on the field in that weakness of either transition or max V. And it was that simple. We just made sure we used spreadsheets. We used the stopwatch. We used the video. And we tried to uh, keep our focus on effective and standpoint where we go see it. The effective minimal dose where we don't want to fatigue an athlete. Because if an athlete will hit his best time, if he hit a PR, let's say if a guy is short excel and we're working tens, and I say, okay, you got six tens. I want you to come in at this time. I don't want you to come in super fast and I want you to come in this slow if you ran a 159 I want you to work on coming in between 155 and 157 that's what we want to hit today don't try to run any faster than that because I want rhythm I'm trying to develop rhythm and rise in that process as well so I don't want you to be out of control and try to run as fast as you can because the effort meter matters to me athletes who try to run past 90 percent effort gets tight and they shorten their ranges of motion so in that regards to using the stopwatch and the time helps me regulate and control the effort that they're using to hit the goal once they hit those goals workout's done so if i hit one five six one five five if i hit that two or three times i don't need six reps or, or, or multiple sets to hit it i've already accomplished it at that point now we're going into something else that my company, we're going to just getting in, in and out of our stance to work on our first step exposure. Okay, so that, that makes a lot of sense to me because you're talking about, hey, I've achieved my goals. Let's fill in the gaps elsewhere. Once you've achieved your goals, that's for the acceleration phase. Give me a little more uh, specificity of, you, if you can't say to an athlete, I need you to run a 156, a 157, if they cannot do that, like you're, if you're coaching me, I obviously can't make those numbers, right? 
how do you improve my acceleration? Give me some drills. Oh, absolutely. That's a different topic. Um, Getting into drills and concepts, again, that's a part of the buckets when we begin to isolate mm -hmm. those athletes. Uh, and I'll go into a little bit deeper on how I actually look at it. Yeah. There's three ways in my book to get fast. There's projection, there's switching, which is limb exchange, limb exchange, and there's stiffness, okay? Those concepts fit both vertically and horizontally, which is acceleration and max velocity. So if, I get, if, I, if an athlete has a projection issue, then I'm going to, which usually tells me he doesn't start very well, okay? Then I'm going to introduce projection drills that fits those concepts. And projection you're defining as what, horizontal? Initial, so now when we get into projection, once I identify what those issues are, then I need to figure out exactly why he's not projecting well. I have to eliminate first and foremost, this is a strength issue, mm -hmm. okay? Because he needs to be exposed to heavier loads in the weight room. So you can learn to project this has been drive, be able to use the ground to push, okay? The second thing. Hold on, define the word projection for me. So projection is intent in the direction that you're trying to go. It's like I'm talking to a textbook. Okay, <laughs> love that. Okay, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Intent in the direction which I'm trying to go. I'm trying to go forward. How, can, how uh, successful or skilled am I at producing force Horizontally. Horizontally. Forward. forward. So in regards to projection, the first thing you have to think about, not only because projection is also carries over to max velocity because we want to go vertical, but in initial acceleration, it's horizontal. Mm -hmm. And then you have to add on that step of orientation. So it really, you want to go forward before mm -hmm. we go because you'll gradually rise. Remember mm -hmm. I said rhythm and rise. So when you initially push and project your hips, you have to go forward to get to that 45 degree angle. So I have to teach them how to roll that hip over that knee and roll that knee over that big toe to drop that shin angle so they can drive out and up to the 45 degree angle. That's what the proper projection angle and in initial start should look like. Okay, that makes total sense. What are the few barriers that people face to reaching a high level of projection or the ability to produce force horizontally? Trunk stability, a lot of times athletes don't have the core strength or understand what type of core strength to, to use to fix that issue. A lot of coaches don't. Uh, to me, when you, I'm thinking horizontal force, mm -hmm. I'm thinking anti-rotation. I wanna minimize rotation. I don't wanna, cause a lot of times people overextend, cause everybody's, remember the key word in our industry when everybody's teaching speed is push, 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 push. Yeah. So you get these athletes are over pushing. But they forget that they got to retract and pull that leg back. So mm -hmm. once you initially hit that ground with a maximum force, you have to then pull that leg back. A lot of them get so preoccupied with pushing that they over push and then it causes an over rotation because they're overextended and they get stuck backside. So being able to control your torso and your trunk and keep the core stable as you begin to push so those forces transfer, then you have better control, which gives you the ability to switch and retract. Makes a lot of sense. So now, now you have a stable base, you have a stable core, you have a stable whole upper half, mm -hmm. if that sucker is applied appropriately. By the way, that's gonna allow you to maintain that forward that projection, lead, right? I and that projection. Yes. And so that's gonna let you start to work on turnover Correct. underneath to increase your force. Okay, yes. how, do you, how do you test for that? Hey, they got a weak core, they got too much rotation, that's causing them to maybe rise too early or inability to keep that angle appropriately. How do you test, like, yep, they're weak there? So we, we're breaking down film, and when we're looking at film, and remember I told you there's three aspects that we look at, we try to keep everything simplified into, is, is projection, orientation, our projection, switching, and stiffness. So I look at their ability to exchange their limbs. 
And if they are, are stuck backside because they're late in their switch, mm -hmm. I need to figure out why. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people are stuck backside. One, I told you we overextend. Two, that overextension is usually because they lack pelvic control. And when I say core and trunk stability, it's that I tie that pelvis into the upper trunk as one unit. If they don't have control of that pelvis, usually that's going to have what we call a high backside score, where they're going to spend a lot of time stuck backside and lose that ability to retract. So the first and foremost, we got to be able to get control of your pelvis. And if you get control of your pelvis, then your core is stable. And you know what that feels like. The stronger and stable you are, the, more, the better you're going to transport that, transfer that force, the better your projection is going to be, the easier it's going to be for you to retract that leg from the backside of underneath you and then be repetitive with that action. Within the that action. faster you're going to be. The faster you're going to go. Okay. Where the hell was this when I was in high school? Okay. Right? So <laughs> as if that would have made the difference. So, and, and just to clarify, um, when you say getting stuck backside, Go ahead and define that for so, me. So, I mean, it was that backside heel. We don't, we, as soon as you drive, I mean, first, and I don't want to get ahead of where we're at, but when you hit that ground, and first thing foremost, you want to be working down and back behind you. So, you know, you're okay with having room to hit underneath your center mass, but we prefer you to hit slightly back behind your center mass in initial projection and acceleration. Um, and it's a lot of times you see a lot of people trying to, and I used to be guilty of this where you're teaching bounding and then, and then transferring bounding over to acceleration. And that's not necessarily what's happening. And they get stuck in trying to repeat that or, you, or mimic that same motion in real time sprinting. So what happens is they spend less time on the ground pushing to where in acceleration, early, max, early acceleration, you want to spend more time on the ground less time in the air. And then they're starting to bound in the initial push they get kind of lost and stuck because they get this extra unnecessary air time. And then that legs and that heel, where the path of what, and within your retraction, the heel goes up instead of initially coming forward. We like to tell our athletes to, I always want to think of your hip, your knee, and your heel coming forward. The path is what matters. And within that path, to me, that's what separates the fastest athletes in the world. It's not necessarily always what's happening on the ground. It's the path of what's happening in the air. And that when being stuck backside, that interferes with the natural path of acceleration, where the hip fires to go forward, then the knee travels. Now, as the heel is coming forward, it's actually coming up as it loads back behind the hamstring to come forward and then back down at its cross points, which is usually at the knee. That path in the air is what separates the fastest athletes in the world. And they can get consistent with that. That's when you begin to see the difference and you see their times begin to drop. Love that. Okay. So um, I heard an error that people would make would be giving an athlete a bounding drill because that's going to, first of all, that's going to play with their projection. It's going to change that orientation. They become far more vertical, whereas you're trying to work on acceleration, which is far more horizontal. Correct. Did it, was that right? That's right, 100%. Because okay. bounding... Bounding is about generating forces. Yep. Okay. It's a, it's a power drill. Yep. Um, power is more, like I told you, to me, identify that in transition. transition. That's the difference. Yeah. But in early acceleration, it's not necessarily what's happening, but we use that as a tool. So to me, using resistance to help you get a better angle ah. creates a better environment for acceleration. That's when you start, you getting your sled play, your 1080s, 
your, uh, your harness resistance sprints. It gets you into the angle so you can work on that path that you utilize in early acceleration. Love that. Okay, wall drills show up here? Wall drills show up as well because before we unload the athlete, we like to get into the wall, which helps you, which unloads the athlete to a point to where they can find that angle and work and identify that path. You see, a lot of times you see people do wall drills. They're kind of, they're not done correct. Ugh, they're so vertical. Yeah, they're too vertical. There's not enough stability being th uh, talked about or encouraged. There's no stiffness at ground contact. There's... And, and when for primarily more than anything else, you should be holding the wall up and the wall shouldn't be holding you up and everybody's just kind of just leaning on the walls. It's become a drill that, it saddens me when I look on the internet and I see what's going on. Yeah. Um, but it's such a useful tool if done right. So we do a lot of our, our wall drills now on sleds. So we use the sleds because it allows us to now push our torso through instead of the wall being restricted. So we can work on vertical projection. We also can work on horizontal. If we're working on just, for example, we're targeting just the hips. Mm -hmm. I'll use the wall and I'll keep them to a 40, in a slight 45 degree angle, but I'm not worrying about projection in direction. I'm more so worrying about driving the hips and feeling torque being created around the hips to get to that point to where they feel when it's time to exchange. Um, Torque is a big word, a big word that we're using more. It's something that I stumbled in years ago, and I always used to keep it to myself. Now science has kind of caught on to it. Again, it goes back to what's happening in the air, because if I can create enough tension, called a TAV, triangular velocity, that's the new science behind it, but back then we didn't have no turns behind it. Meaning if I can be a hammer in the air and hit down with more force from above, I'm gonna generate more force on the ground. So if I get more torque from above, I'm gonna hammer down and hit the ground harder, which is gonna generate me more of a, generate more velocity and momentum in the direction that I want to go. Yeah. Okay. So that makes that makes a ton of sense. Now, when you're talking early acceleration, and this will be this will be the last piece that we live in this phase. Mm -hmm. You're talking early acceleration. Those first three steps. You're trying to live as horizontal as possible. You're looking for one fault might be lack of core control. Mm -hmm. What else could be a fault that is transpiring and preventing you? Well, let's, let's, let's take it back. Yep. Let's go back to what I initially looked at from the beginning, uh, stance and starts. Mm -hmm. So being able to be able to push off and project your center of mass as far as possible in the short amount, shortest amount of time possible. So that to be, has to be a very aggressive initial push. Um, a lot of athletes have to learn and understand what that feels like. They're not aware that they're not pushing. Pushing, you'd be surprised because, you know, people – when they think about speed, a lot of athletes think about frequency. You know, all they want to do is move their arm, their legs and arms fast and just spin, 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 spin. They don't even realize that they're spinning. So initial push is, and moving your center mass forward is the first thing we focus on. Once you get into your center, sometimes we start that on a kneeling concept. One knee, just to get that, what that ankle feels like to set up and being able to roll forward. Remember, I said you have to roll that forward. I call that a hip drop, shin drop being able to get into that initial orientation because that will take you forward. If you don't roll that forward, you're going to end up going vertically too soon. Uh, and we start from a half kneeling standpoint and then we raise it up to a two point. So once we get into a two point, then we teach them to push off of both feet to push their center of mass out. So in the process, those same concepts of rolling everything forward, being able to push off two feet within that, 
is the next thing skill that they have to master. And remember I said speed is a skill. So you're learning these steps in layers so it can kind of register more easily and more effectively. And once you get into being able to do a two point stance and being able to initially push, then we work on getting into a three point. Cause now you're a little bit comfortable in understanding that. And in the process of teaching you how to get into that three point stance and initially project out, we are exposing whatever mobility issues you might have that might be restricting you from getting into a comfortable stance and whatever core weaknesses are so. Because a lot of times people can't get their spine extended and that core stable embraced to be able to create enough load into the ground to project out. Because that's really why we're getting into a three-point stance to begin with, is to be able to use the ground to push against to launch us in the direction we want to go. Okay, so that's awesome information. So I'm taking an athlete out um, first time back, let's say on the field, or first time back sprinting. They're coming off an ACL, so this is the, their first attempt at producing high levels of speed from a complete rest, okay? I'm putting them in a kneeling position, okay? Let's say their affected limb, their surgical limb is the left one, it's forward, they're on, down on the right knee, okay? We're five months, four months post-op, so no surgical considerations. You're gonna ask them to accelerate out as rapidly as possible for however many yards, and we're just gonna look at those first three steps. I'm looking at that first step. You're I'm looking not, at that first I'm step. I'm not gonna let the athlete do anything past the first step until I see him being able to project himself in the right direction efficient. Yep. So that half kneeling drill, if they're strong enough, first and foremost, I gotta see if he's strong enough to even push off one leg. How do you remember, test that? You're kneeling down, force play did. Okay. So when we do our force play testing, we do a lot of uh, different variations of isometrics that we do. And with the isometric holes, we'll expose the where the weakness is within the chain on one leg, where it's the ankle, the knee, and the hip itself. Uh, and then if that's an issue, we won't expose that athlete to that drill mm -hmm. until we feel like he's ready. Mm -hmm. And then when he's ready, then we will go ahead and begin to start working on getting him to roll into projection drills. Yep, yep, okay. Great. Say he's ready. Mm -hmm. We put him out there. He's in a split stance. He's in, um, he's in a kneeling stance. We ask him to propel out. What are you looking for that tells you this is an outstanding first step? I'm looking at the center of mass. Yeah. And how that center of mass pushes his torso out in front. So is he able to drive that center of mass, keep his core stable, and project himself initially forward, out and up? And I'm looking, I, I tell my athletes, I encourage them, I say, I don't like to see you rise higher than six inches in the initial beginning. If you start getting up above six inches, that's a little bit too fast, too soon. You're going to get vertical too soon. Mm -hmm. And the goal really in the 40 is staying in that horizontal phase of pushing as long as possible. But I'm more so looking at how far he can project this center mass and this torso out in front of him in the shortest amount of time possible. Okay. And because I think just for what helps me the most is I got to know what an awesome rep looks like. Yeah. I got to know the ideal because then I can deconstruct from there and say, he didn't do this. He didn't do that. So is his initial movement, when, mm -hmm. his, when you see his initial center of mass at the hip begin to move forward, is his core stable because if that's the case, it's pushing his torso out forward. Yep. Is it going forward first and not up? Yeah. We wanted to go forward and then slightly up. If you look at the angle, you look at the normal graphs, you want to be somewhere in the mean. In that medium, in that in-between stage, you got a line going down and going across. You want to kind of end up right in the middle instead of staying flat too long. So it's forward and then slightly up. I'm looking for that, and I'm looking for that aggressive shin angle, the hip drop, and I'm looking for that shin to drop as he's pushing in real time. Yeah, okay. So 
From that, that, that's super helpful. You realize he's not doing an awesome job of it. You don't think it's coming from his core. Where else could it be coming from? Just strength. Strength of his lower extremity. Yes. Okay. Now, how do you determine whether it's quad, whether it's glute, whether it's calf? You're going to say force plates, right? It depends. Well, yeah, force plates will help identify where that weakness is in the chain from, a, from an individual standpoint yep. initially. But when we're talking about, okay, say he's weaker than his ankles, you know, the thing about understanding true acceleration and from an ankle standpoint, there's no extension in the ankle that I'm looking for. I'm looking for the ankle more so to be stable and stiff. Mm-hmm. So when it hits the ground, it doesn't fold. It just dry, projects the hip outward. Um, I would address that in corrective exercises or I'll address that along with the accessory block to make sure we're building that. Or I might put that into fillers. We have these fillers that we build into our strength blocks to actually, that's maximizing rest and recovery. So I I, I actually aren't sitting idle. Um, But the big thing for me is teaching horizontal force and what that feels like and being able to be exposed the athlete to heavy loads. Uh, He's coming out of a hinge position. So for me, patterns are everything to answer your question. So when we talk about acceleration pattern, we talk about glutes and low back quads. So those are the things, glutes, quads, low back. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm building my whole acceleration max effort pa- uh, workout day because I usually like to do horizontal focuses on our max effort days because it requires heavy lifts and usually that phase of acceleration, everything is heavier loads. Um, anything that allows me to expose that athlete to a hinge position to where he can begin to launch himself out and feel that sequence come to life. Key point, I'm training the pattern not isolating muscle groups, that trend, that tends to resonate with the athlete a little bit more effectively, just focusing on just say a squat. Now, if that athlete does not stay in his push long enough, so we're talking about initial push, Mm -hmm. I might use the hex. If he's not staying in this push long, if I need him to push longer within that push, I might use a box squat. So they both are similar. But it's more so what athletes ident- or what exercise impacts that athlete the best. Yep. That's what I would stick with with that particular one because I, I try not to be, I try not to be cookie cutter with our guys. I try to be individualized as much as I can, especially as we get into the later blocks because I only got eight weeks, so I got to figure it out very, very quickly. This is in combine prep. This is in combine prep. Or in, in any aspect, it's hard to get athletes nowadays for twelve weeks. Yeah. You're not going to get them that long. So if I got four weeks, I got a lot of things. I got to figure things out very quickly. So figuring out what to expose them to that's going to give me the best bite for my buck is what I'm shooting for more than anything else. And I'm taking all that assessment information and trying to figure that out. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Talk to me about foot ankle. If your foot ankle isn't firm, you're getting too much heel drop. You're getting not enough control and you're seeing too much inversion, eversion around the ankle. Mm-hmm. Even, even in that first step, you should be able to pick that up, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. What's the carryover there in the weight room? We do a ton of drills on the wall for stiffness. Mm-hmm. We do a ton of drills for stiffness in general from an isometric standpoint and then a reactive standpoint. So, again, going back to what the day is, the day is, say, let's say it's a horizontal focus day for acceleration. That's going to usually be on our max effort days because of the heavier loads. And based on the force velocity curve, we know that the heavier loads, you're at the other end of the spectrum where everything needs to be heavy, but you're trying to overcome gravity and generate massive amounts of force. The stiffness component, putting them in those angles and being able to hold those angles 
at low, at, uh, using time as the low, but being able to put the foot in the right position and also using mobility drills that mimic the hip shop, shin drop that we're trying to create in real time. It takes a massive amount of stiffness to hold those positions. So it's this one of my favorite drills. It's, like, it's a modified sissy squat that I do. That I'll okay. put them on the wall. I'll load them in like facing the wall in a hinge position, hinging their hips back, feet underneath their center mass. And I would just have them roll their hips forward just to get used to that shin angle so you can expose it on how it's going to work in real time. So to answer your question, anything that creates stiffness and creates the motor control around the hips of the motion of dropping the hips above in front of the knee and the knee in front of the toes, no matter what that is, to, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be specific to that concept yeah. so it can translate over to when the athlete needs it. Because remember, we're, we don't have a ton of time, so i got to be specific as much as I can. Okay. So in the Troy Jones sissy squat that you just yeah. described. <laughs> it's not mine. I, I, I've seen We're going to call it that. Right, right, we're right. going to call it the TJ sissy <laughs> squat. Their hands are on the wall. Mm-hmm. When you say you're you're in the hinge position and then you're dropping your knees forward, is your target the floor with those knees? Yeah, because what okay, happens you're is if down. you're in a hinge, think about if your back is flat and if you're moving your center of mass, you have to keep your core engaged. You're, the only way on the wall, your, your, torso, your torso is going to go vertical, but you, the goal is to drop your hips in front of your knee and then your knee in front of your toes. Gotcha. So it's the same drop that you're gonna use in real time of that lower extremity from the knee over the toe. Because remember, we're focused on the foot and ankle complex. Yep. So we're trying to build stiffness in that foot. I'm more so really concerned, more concerned with that knee dropping over that toe, yep. over that big toe specifically. Yep. And it mimics that motion perfectly. And first we start with isometric holds in that position and then begin to add the motor control and the motion to it. And it usually transfers over very, very well to the athlete. So that's that sounds like a great drill. The bottom of that position, the end of that rep, they're What's their torso doing? Their torso is it facing the wall? vertical facing, okay. the, facing wall. the wall. Their arms will be facing the walls because they're holding themselves up. Yep. And their torso will be vertical, but their shin angles will be parallel to the ground. And their foot and ankle will be vertical, holding stiff. That's aggressive. It's aggressive, um, but we don't start there. We start yeah. there with isos. Yep. So just getting into a basic horizontal position of an iso, holding that position, bilateral, unilateral, building strength, uh, using the load and lift progressions to also build stiffness. We also do these switch drills on the wall to where we like the athlete to feel what projection or understand what projection feels like. So I will use say, okay, you understand what your cross points need to be. If you hit down, remember our goal is to hit down and back. So as you're hitting down and pushing, you should feel your hips project. So we'll put them at a 45 degree angle and we'll, I'll say cross the ankle, cross the step calf cross at the knee and work your way up the wall every time you hit the ground you should feel your hips project vertically hmm. into that direction and really all this promoting is stiffness or projection as stiffness at ground contact so they can feel and understand what that feels like and then last and not least but anything else sleds being able to correct the athlete getting in low level sled pushes uh high level high hand, low handle sled pushes high handle sled pushes but getting them to think about I want the foot to be stiff and I want the shin angle to stay locked in and I want you to attack at a certain cross point or well, just getting them to feel that translates over very easily. Yeah. The, what I love hearing is the intersection finally, I think between your world and my world where you've probably been coaching this for a long time. Finally, we're getting to the point with, with anterior knee pain 
and and really we we have mr curtis to thank for this which is knees over toes guy yeah. right and it's like yeah. the ability so now we are putting sorry his last name's patrick we, now we are putting um the knee over the toe and holding in isos not as much for performance but to desensitize that anterior knee yeah it's going to bring down pain but that shin angle is essential for high level performance it's also essential for a knee to be functioning pain free and so we will see some of this creep into our world the value you're bringing to me troy is you're coming at it from a performance standpoint to say hey the way you're getting your athletes pain free is also the way i'm going to make them perform better absolutely and that's the way it should be that's the way it should be that's the way i that's the way i figured it out when i figured this out years ago i felt like i need to spend more time with the medical community to figure something to problem solve some of these issues that i'm having real time with these athletes and even if something as simple as the position of where the foot strike is determines everything and I tell an athlete, I said, why are you getting so much heel drop? And they were like, oh, I'm trying to do what you're asking me to do. I said, well, let me give you something simple to, to, to feel. Because everything is more, I don't want you thinking. And you're thinking right now, I need you to feel. And I, it's the worst thing in the world is when I see a guy just smoke coming out of his ears and say, I got to figure out a different way because this can't work. I'll put him in a push-up position. I'll put his feet in the ground in the push-up position. And I said, find the ball of your foot the instep, the ball of your foot where it's all bone. It's the same as the palm of your hand, okay? Put that in the ground, push it straight down, and now I'll do a push-up on their foot and ankle and they can't believe it. They're like, that didn't bother me at all. I said, so if you hit the ground with your foot in the right position, it's bone. Guess what? You're gonna get an initial projection. It's solid. So just little cues like that gets them to feel, okay, they can identify what you're asking them to do you've successfully communicated a concept that they never maybe heard before they can, that they can actually see and feel and mimic and think and not even think about it just it, it comes so natural because it's something that we naturally should be doing that it, it takes the guesswork out and really what i try to do with every athlete when i'm coaching i'm not afraid to correct an athlete in real time which i see some Coaches are afraid of an athlete not understanding. That's a part of the learning curve. That's a part of the skill development. You got to get over that. I have no problem in challenging that athlete, but if I challenge that athlete, I'm going to give them simple concepts to problem solve along the way. That, that's, really, that's really powerful. What, what I really heard that was gold is your obsession with cueing and cueing so that the athlete internalizes and can then change their patterns. And that's the hallmark, honestly, of a great sports PT and, a, and of a great coach is how many cues do you have in your repertoire to say, you know what, let me pull this out and let the athlete, feel. maybe this works for the athlete. But the detail with which you're speaking about, dude, we've only covered the first step. And you haven't, you've been talking for 35 minutes about the first step. It's crazy because I, I figured this out. I said, um, I might have to say the same thing 10 different ways. And that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Because everybody perceives information differently. And we got to be okay with that. We all learn differently. But once you figure out what that athlete's response to, you should go home and write that down. Because then you should build all your cues around that same delivery system that you just, when you unlock something for them within their brain so they can understand you. Now they can, they can, can connect with you. They can buy in. And if you, once you get buy-in, you can really get that athlete where they need to be. Yeah. Yeah. That, that level of detail and the care. I talk to young clinicians about this a ton is you go home, see if you can go over your, 
day, hey, what worked, what didn't? Because tomorrow, double down on what worked and yeah. figure out what didn't. So every single yeah. day, you're getting better. You've been doing this for 30 years, so you've gotten pretty good at it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of failure along the way. Yeah, that, a lot of banging my head against the wall, say hard hits. That, you, need you need to go back and figure this out, man. The, yeah, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a great outlook. That, that firm foot contact is something that has finally reached our profession. So I think we're beginning to see more of that. And then what exactly transpires at gastroc soleus and its foot control and, and foot intrinsic it shows up a lot in the pathology world you yes. think about like plantar fasciitis you think about achilles tendonitis and tendinopathies and then you think about patellar tendinosis that whole world very often is that force is not traveling perfectly up that chain it's our job to figure it out from a pathology standpoint it's your job to figure out from a performance standpoint so that the athlete can accelerate forward so when you're teach, let me ask you this: What is the timing of these drills? Because you mentioned how you have great carryover, wall drill, um, high sled push, low sled push. When do you do those in tandem to realizing that it's a fault on the field, or in speed? How do you sync those up? So sometimes, when I see, there's only so many, so much time in the day, as we all know. So, your programming from strength in your field. You say it has to be precise and it has to have intent behind it. And intent is one of my favorite words because I feel like so many people throw so many things against the wall to see what sticks in today's world because it looks sexy. I'm not going to get into that. That's another tangent. Oh, get, no, get into that. Get into the Instagram world, Troy. Why don't we see more of you on Instagram, Troy? Because I'm an old guy. I don't like Instagram. <laughs> You're an old head. That's what Ty is telling me. You're an old head. Okay. I'm old head. But um, exposure to what the issues are and to things that matter. Um, I'm always trying to pick what's the best bite for my buck to solve the problem. Um, if I'm doing things in real time, and I told you we expose the athletes to whatever buckets they are on the field. So if they're having, let's say, we just talked about projection. So if they have projection issues, they're gonna spend most time into their, in their prehab on the field in their warmups on projection concepts and pattern concepts of acceleration and projection. That's what they're going to focus on because that's what's going to correct that issue at that time. Mm -hmm. And then when we get into the weight room, we'll use the filler exercise to support it. So we've accomplished that for that goal for that particular day in that realm yeah. of acceleration. Yeah. Um, depending on max velocity, it's the same exact thing. Depending on power, it's the same exact thing. But as exposure to things that solve the problem, you should set that up individually for each client that you have especially at the level of the athlete that we're working with, it goes back to intent. You have to have intent. So now I look up, I, it might be a little lengthier in the prehab phase early on in the training sessions from the first to second week. But third week, that motor control and that adaptation has carried over to now he's doing things at higher speeds and can handle more volume and more intensities because we took the time to prep the body for that. Mm -hmm. Instead of rushing and trying to introduce loads too early because we feel like that's what they need to be. That athlete's got to be ready and resilient enough to handle those progressions and those loads. Because if he's not, you want to just set them back. Yeah, yeah. And, and so much of that can be weight room, right? Yeah. And, and just building the capacity of the entire system. Mm -hmm. So you'll, your warm-ups will be athlete-specific mm -hmm. and will be geared towards... Pattern-specific. Pattern-specific, yeah. and which is geared towards their their deficiencies right and, and yep filling. directing the issues of the topic of today of that day love that okay be, be, here's why that brings such a smile to me because 
this is the way I approach an ACL session. You see this athlete in gen, in gen pop or like standard setup. You're seeing them three times a day. Sorry, three times a week. So what is your theme of today as a therapist? My theme is plyometric activity. Great. So you have a working set of plyos, which we want to we wanna itemize beforehand or delineate beforehand. I want 40 touches. You're going to do 40 plyometric activities, right? Okay. What is your warm-up? What is your strength phase after those 40? Because it doesn't take that long. What are your rest? You have to have a plan or a theme of the day. And by the way, if I'm the next treating therapist, I should be able to look at what you did and I should say, oh, the theme of the day obviously was this. And the whole thing was geared to that. So it sounds like you have a similar kind of workflow. I do. I have a system. Um, And my system's all built around the theme of the day. And from the initial thing you do in warm up from your soft tissue, all the way up is built upon that theme and that pattern that we're working on for that day. To me, it accelerates the learning curve. It makes more sense. I'm not gonna rush my warm up. My warm up shit is the wrong. The warm up's the wrong name for it, honestly, because it's a part of everything that we're doing in trying to send the messaging to your brain. Awesome. Um, okay, so give me some examples on transition because you covered the hell out of acceleration. So when we're talking transition, now the athlete's a little bit more upright, mm-hmm. right? Talk to me about what flaws do you see most with the transition phase? Um, people don't, in running, and understanding acceleration and transition and Getting to the right plyos makes a big difference. Uh, like if I'm looking, if working on the initial projection of the first three to four steps, we're talking about single bounds, one bound at a time. I mean, or, I'm sorry, broad jumps, one broad jump at a time, just to produce max force. If we're looking at power, we're now looking at continuous bounds, something that's repetitive. And a lot of times the athlete struggles in transition because they try to run before the run occurs. You have to think force first to power. So force transitions to power, which now the speed of how fast you're delivering that force has begun to change, but you still have to stay within force instead of thinking run. Mm-hmm. The run will come because of the force. And if you can get an athlete to buy in this force, I say force to power because power in general means speed in my world. With time. Yeah. Time. Time component. So stay within it. If I stay in the push and I don't rush to sprint or rush to run, the run will come. And when they get under, when they buy into that and they stay patient, they realize how they'll look up when they get into their angles and they they say, keep your eyes down, gradually run. And they'll look up and they'll begin to see the distances that they're covering between each step changes and increases. Now they're covering more ground, they're producing more force. And then that last part of that is switching the limb exchange, being on time and understanding that path in the air. When they bring those things together, that's when you see the best changes in transition. Yeah, okay, what are the faults you see? What prevent athletes from- Rushing. Okay. They always wanna rush, they wanna run. How do you coach? You got to get, because we use different drills. We use, we have this one drill we call an acceleration tape. Uh, besides using video, and uh, it's so, and then besides using, besides also, I, I didn't talk about acceleration profiling, but acceleration profiling will help me determine the weaknesses of where the athlete is in regards to transition or, or early acceleration and use a certain amount of load to put them in that angle to where they begin to default within the sprint. So when they start getting too vertically and start spinning, 
being able to have the right load on the sled at that angle teaches them to push longer and stay aggressive or they cannot move the load. Mm -hmm. But it helps me identify where that weakness shows up within the profile. Um, that's one way to fix it. The other way to fix it is just getting them to buy into looking at your speeds when we take those time, because we're doing everything GPS tracking in real time, and we're doing, we also giving them feedback in real time based on what those speeds are. And then we sometimes will wait to the end of the session. Sometimes if we got a gold nugget, we want to give to them right then and there, we'll give them a nugget. And that's all just breaking down film and letting them see themselves in real time. But then an environment change is what I'm big on. I love impacting the environment to get real time and real time results. So I like to use acceleration tapes. And what they are is tapes that are measured out of steps where if you're, and it's very simple, if your center of mass hits the cone and where you strike, you're right where you're supposed to be. If you're below it, you didn't push hard enough. It's that simple. And we gradually increase that, those distances over time until we find the optimum distance for each athlete. Because everybody, sometimes you can create, you have to be careful because sometimes you can create overstriding. But I'm not, you know, I'm going to always start with the lowers, the lowest tape, because they are predetermined. I didn't create that. Um, but having the because the, uh, there's a formula that we have, or there's necessarily, there's an already laid out paths that we have that are predetermined. We'll just start up the early path and just kind of just really just be laid out over time until we think that athletes get an optimum point where they're very consistent with their stride length and their turnover. Then we stick there and we say, hey, you're hitting your best times here. This is what we're going to stick. We can go from there. And we'll even break that down into to asymmetrical. So we'll start just symmetrical on just one side where it's focusing on your center of mass. And then we'll use paint sticks to make it asymmetrical on the left and right from each leg. Mm -hmm. It's just so you can, they can get a feel or understanding what that feels like. Yeah. Because, again, it's impacting the environment, which transitions and them not having to think. Interesting. That's a very interesting way to use these cues um, to educate the athlete. What, what, what about from a, whether it be mobility or a strength standpoint? Um, do you see show up as a fault during oh, this transition? Absolutely. Um, hips and torque. And I don't, I didn't want to get into that, but we have a pretty much educated audience. One thing. So educated. Yeah. I mean, the smartest bastards I've ever met. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Guys are really smart in the days. Right? So smart. smarter than me. I tell you that. <laughs> um, torque is a big thing in regards to transition and speed in general overall, because when you get the central nervous system, when you get the body being able to produce force within itself on its own without you, you're really starting to, to get in some things that's going to be sweet. And a lot of times I'll do a simple drill that I learned from, from another coach, Lawrence Seagrave. And I never, I remember when I first seen him do this, he talked about, you know, the guy who learns how to be a super ball is the guy who's going to learn. Or the athletes who learn to be a super ball are the athletes that run faster than everybody else. I was like, what is he talking about? Hmm. And um, he did this demonstration and he said, he was hitting the table and he's like, I don't know if you've seen this, but he's pushing his finger on the table. And she said, this is me manufacturing force. That's my brain creating force on its own listen to the sound, look at the speed of my finger and how's it hit the, how it hit the table. And I'm like, okay, he means reflex. So how do I get everything to the point to where I create a stretch reflex? What does that entail? Posture and position. You gotta have great posture to get the pelvis in the right position so you can kinda begin to get the hip flexors and hip extensors and everything else working together. 
And a lot of times the range of motion around your hips and pelvis matters in regards to create a, to get to a certain point to where you create that torque. And that's all predicated on the path of the air that you take to get there. So when you can take the proper path to get there and feel the torque that creates within your pelvis, then that's your initial component in your mind to think now it's time to switch. So that's when your timing starts to come together for you within your sprint cycle and your rhythm. That's why if you go above 90% effort, you throw yourself off because you never can feel the torque and the whipping action or the loading action around the hips and the pelvis come to life because you're now rushing. So finding that sweet spot of effort, which was going to be, and it's different for everybody because everybody's different and unique but teaching, making sure they have great mobility and pelvic control to be able to get to that point to where they can understand what that feels like. So we try to put them in positions early on in our warm-ups to start teaching the brain on what that feels like. Give me those warm-ups. What <laughs> is that, dude? Just oh, describe man, one of them. There's different variations of glute bridges, single leg glute bridges, dynamic glute bridges. We do manual hip whip drills. Why is that um, helping? Because it's sending messaging to the brain on what that feels like. And I, I use, in understanding this, because everybody, you know, the body works on the sling systems. So being able to get that sling system to connect and feel that rubber band effect within your, your body, within itself, around your spine, they don't have an idea what that, they, that feels like, the, the people who run faster. You know, you look at Usain Bolt, he's like a big slingshot running down the track. Yeah. So, but they have great pelvis control, great spinal alignment, all that good stuff comes into play. So, so you give them the single leg hip bridge, right? Yeah. You're asking them to cue in on, on what? That hip range of motion, terminal extension? Range of motion, first and foremost, and we go ISO. So initially we get to the maximum ranges of motion and we ISO it first. So we can make sure if the glutes firing and your knee is forward in flexion, we'll be able to drive that. If you can lock your pelvis in, it gives you more stability if your core is braced. We have layered exercises from the core up to that point to put that together to teach the concept for us so we can say less. So I've learned to layer my exercises together to teach the lesson for me. Mm -hmm. And it begins to upload just like a computer. And once they start to feel that, then we start getting dynamically. Okay, so give me give me a little taste. You get your, like, walk me all the way through. Give me three examples or so of saying, hey, this guy has no idea what his hip end range is. He has no idea how to live at 90%. Or, okay. How do you, so let's, how do you let's go with, let's use, since we're talking about glute bridge, let's go yeah. glute bridge. We'll go basic glute bridge bilateral. Okay. Okay. Now, base, a lot of times I've noticed in how the PT world used to teach glute bridge versus on how I teach glute bridge. Okay. I want full spinal extension up through my cervical spine because that's what's happening in real time in the sprint cycle. I'm not just getting to a point to where it stops in my thoracic spine. I've seen people teach that. Yep. It's not happening in real time. Okay. So I make them use their upper body into a glute bridge and make a total body event. So I want them to drive through their elbows and squeeze through and extend up through the cervical spine. But in the beginning before that, I teach breathing. So I can get that rib cage control to keep the rib cage down so they can brace. Uh, we'll use medicine balls and things of that magnitude to, to create that type of bracing and breathing. And then we'll go to the glute bridge using the elbows driving through the ground to get the spine to move into extension. Then we're going to single leg flexion. What's their foot doing? Their, their heels, what happens, but I like, there's a couple things that I'll play with. Sometimes I'll have them extend through their feet. Hold on, while you're moving, let me spin you a little bit towards me. Yeah, just so we can see a little yeah. bit. So I have them on a glue bridge, heels down, toes are up, and drive through. And sometimes, depending on the athlete and the message that I'm dealing with and trying to mimic what's happening in the air, I'll have them extend their toes down so they can get their glute, their hips to come up higher. So what's on the ground, toes or Toe, heel? Toes on something. I do both. 
I do both just so the athlete can feel the difference. Awesome. Because I like to get them to experience, again, I, I, I depend on the environment to help teach the lesson for me. Uh, and when they feel comfortable, I say, okay, this is what's going to happen in the air. This is the feelings you should be feeling in the air. So then we're going to a single leg glute bridge, same concept, isometric, holding at the time. And then sometimes I'll add tension. And then I'll actually have them switch or I'll have them get into a glute bridge. This is when I want the foot flat. And I'll say, lock your hips in, and I'll just have them switch just to stay dynamic and being able to feel the whipping action and, and acceleration. If it's max velocity, I'll take them and bridge them into a straight leg bridge, and I'll hold their heels. Mm -hmm. I'll have them bridge up, and I'll just simply say, stay braced, keep your core engaged, feel the action of what happens at your hips. I'll drop a leg, the leg will whip back up on its own, and then they laugh. Oh, I never realized that happened. But again, it starts with a two-leg glute bridge, bilateral glute bridge, into a, a single leg glute bridge or using a single leg into a dynamic whipping action. And then we'll do some things where we'll get up on a band and start moving fast to keep the hips engaged, but we'll progress over time over this, throughout this stuff. But again, it's just impacting the environment to help with the messaging. And so, and what's on the ground um, cranially? Like their neck we'll is have them neck. We'll have them on the ground. We have these pillows. Yeah. So we put these pillows behind them that kind of brings their head and spine to be in a neutral position. And we'll have them also always engage through their upper torso and driving the elbows down and back yeah. so they can stay engaged. Keep that, that torso in that erect position that we want that mimics sprinting. Awesome. I could I could totally see how that that seems like it mimics certainly your transition towards your max phase, mm -hmm. right? Because you're all the way up, you're taut, you've come all the way upright, mm -hmm. right? And that's what you're seeing more as you get higher level with the glute bridge. Am I yes. right about that? Yes. Okay. So I'm going bent knee to straight leg. Yep. Just the same as we transition in real time running. I'm going from hip projection to hip whip. The whipping action to hip is max velocity. Awesome. Okay. So that's starting, that's starting to make a lot of sense. You're interspersing this in between their max velocity efforts. I'm doing this prehab. This I'm is already, all, this is I'm, I'm laying this down in the, in the, uh, in, in the early stages of the session. Yep. Even down to the core, I do an exercise called an ab 45. And the ab 45 is a laying on your back, heels is about six inches from your hamstrings. You have a partner that's holding down your ankles. Okay. You come up, and I took this from Barry Ross. Okay. Shout out Barry Ross. I hope Shout he's listening. Shout out Barry Ross. Yes, sir. You should be listening. Should be listening, Barry. Okay. <laughs> but uh, you'll come up, your torso six inches off the ground from the hip keeping your spine elongated. It helps really to lock in your psoas and it mimics that sprint position and projection and acceleration. So now, or that even in that just, and the angles change because that position doesn't change. The angle changes, but the position just goes horizontal to vertical. It stays locked in. That's probably one of the best core exercises I've ever used in regards to mimic the position of speed. For acceleration, for max velocity, I just do a six inch lift and a slight rotation and I tell them, to wrap around their spine as if it's a pole. That now mimics the rotation of max velocity. So now I'm putting in the core, putting in messaging or exercises that's creating messaging in regards to what's gonna be happening from a trunk structure in real time. Love that, that takes a lot of thought and a lot of prep, but, but that's why you get a great product. But that's why, and remember the volume Remember, in teaching speed, I just need to hit the mark or the goal. I don't need a ton, ton time of reps because, the, you know, the central nervous system, when it comes down to speed, has to replenish itself. So if you're taking the adequate amounts of time of rest to replenish between each set, 
for each rep itself, you're not going to have but so much time. So your prep is where all your success is. So you can get the body to go out there and run fast when you need it to, and then you can get done and get out of there. Fast. Fast. <laughs> fast. Okay. Taking a step back from all that, tell me where plyometric training, box jumps, where does that come into your world? Two, two different ways. Um, plyometrics that I do in, in, uh, from a speed standpoint on the field has to match up with what the goal is of the sprint. And then any type of force that I might use from a power standpoint when I get to that power phase of training or if someone's bucket is power, I'll introduce them to different types of box, different types of jumps. Uh, and all my plyos aren't created equal. And let's say if it's combine time, I had to have work on specific jumps. So it goes back to my days. Because of my dynamic effort days are reactive based, I stick on my vertical process, um, vertical concepts there. So anything that's vertical jumping, anything that's box jumping, and if I use a box jump, well, you know what the reasons behind box jumps are, just to unload the jumps itself early on in the stages. But if I use them, it's a vertical impulse. If I turn it into a horizontal jump on the box, I'm going to put that on the max effort day because horizontal focus is on my max effort days. And if you look at the force velocity curve, heavier loads and acceleration matter. Uh, early first up exposure is you got to have heavy, extremely heavy loads because that's what's going to help you overcome gravity to project your torso out forward. We know that. So I try to stay aligned with mixing my plyos in on those days too. So I got to control my volume and I use in my speed sessions. So I use it more as a PAP. So whatever prop plyos I use in real time on my, my uh, acceleration, those are minimal. Maybe one to two steps top just to get the concept off and they're slightly loaded as well. When I want to get into a certain number and because I do so many plyos, it's effective minimal dose because I'm doing plyos every day. Yeah. And it's complementing movement and transition transfer. So I'm probably 20, 25 jumps tops per day. Tight. Yeah, Small. and I'm done. Okay. Yeah. Done. And and where does that fall in the session? So it will fall early on in my prehab phase. So when, when I come back in off the field, I'm a guy, I slow it back down when you're coming in off the field because I feel like the intensity is the speed and when you're running, needs a reset before you go back into the weight room. I don't believe you should just jump right back in. Um, so I'll go back and have medical there and it'll take them through whatever state of readiness they need to prepare. Plus we'll do some testing to see where their central nervous system is. Cool. Because if their central nervous system is dropped down a little bit because of the speed or just because of the volume from subsequent weeks coming, yep. I might deload them in that programming that day. Okay. Um, and what you're just doing like counter movement jump on the force plate to yeah, engage just doing counter okay. movement jumps, RSI jumps, depending on the day. If it's a, if it's a um, if it's a horizontal day, it's counter movement jump, or it might even be a non counter movement jump. Um, and then if it's a vertical day, it'll be an RSI jump or counter movement jump. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I'll have medical go with those guys and make sure they're feeling good and extra corrective type mobility, maybe a little bit more soft tissue work, something like that, just to get them prepared around the joints, bring everything down, yeah. get it ready. And then we'll go through our prep phase again to where we'll start firing everything back up. And that's when we'll introduce our, our plyos, things of that matter, to get them right ready and ready for the lift. It's almost like a, a pattern rehearsal. So awesome. Okay. So I'm going to I'm gonna pivot just a little bit because um, I want to get some of your genius on change of direction mm. and how you approach it. Um, again, I think this is majorly lacking in my world. Like when I take an athlete um, – 
I, I love to, to use ACL as an example, and I'm beginning to teach them how to cut that first effort. I have like a whole thought process of how I want that to look. I want to first teach them to decel. What does my decel look like? What are those steps? How are they dropping their center of mass? What types of uh, faults can I pick up there? Let's address them. Okay, come back, right? Um, now that they know how to decel, what does their axel look like? How well can they, can they ramp things up? What does their understanding or um, their ability to tolerate high loads on that limb, how does that look? How does that show up? How do they recover from that? And then I'm going to start beginning to introduce a very small angle at which they're going to change um, planes. And then I'm just going to progress that. And so you, you just picture like, okay, we're gonna do a 15 degree cut. We're gonna go to 35, we're gonna go to 45. And this is all broken up and this is a number of reps. This is why planning is so important because I, I don't wanna get ahead of, of where you are. I wanna give you the minimal effective dose, right? That's the way I look at change of direction as a sports PT because I'm worried about how they're gonna recover from that. When you're looking from a performance perspective, what's the first thing you look at? Yanni, you pretty much nailed it. Um, I look at mechanical loads, and what I mean by mechanical loads is how many times you start is what I, how many times you start and stop. It, that's one mechanical load. So it's like, the, I look at it the same way I look at a volume of how many sprints you run. So how many decelerations and loading uh, t t times you actually excel and and and, and decel, mm -hmm. and I count those over the course of the session. That's a rep. That's a rep. Mm -hmm. So that helps me determine how much volume I'm going to put over top of you because decelerating is very high intense. Yeah. And I don't think top people understand the loads your body go through. The eccentric force you got to overcome. Um, but you're right on point. And how I like to do it is I isometrics. That's one of my big things. I've been. Isometrics has been a best friend for me for so many years. And you talk about the guy on the wall. He was one of the original, well, not original, but he goes back to Mr. Counters. Mr. Counters. He started with isometrics. Not to be confused with Amos. Who needs to call you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Just kidding, PJ. Um, <laughs> isometrics is more about getting into those in range positions of load and understanding what that feels like and exposing whatever weaknesses you have at those end ranges. And I always tell people, don't, don't cheat yourself looking for depth, look for tension, look for torque, find stability, okay? And then as we expose why you don't have the depth, let's address those issues so we can get more depth if need be, but let's meet you where you are right now. Mm -hmm. Let's try to force feed you into something that you're not ready for. And by depth, you mean just your the ability to depth, drop Just your center ability mass. to be able to drop your center of mass. Um, some people will begin to compromise their position of their spine for the sake of chasing depth, mm -hmm. where I, I, I need more torque and tension to absorb impact so you can get about of it. If you, if you are dropping your center mass way too low because that's what you're mimicking, what you're seeing, how can you get out of that if mm -hmm. you're not in a position to be able to reapply force? Mm -hmm. You're not. Mm -hmm. um, so we work on that through isometrics to expose whatever weaknesses we have early on. And then we go through these in-range isometrics where we start addressing that phase of explosion. Because I, I load, explode, and drive is how I call it. So that phase of explosion, when that amortization phase 
to where that that contract relax mm-hmm. phase has to come to life because that's where the sweet spot is. A lot of people don't understand that. We begin to work on that phase before I even begin to start getting into any type of deceleration steps. So we'll go from a bilateral base position into a split stance position uh, and working on gradually being able to come out out of those phases being reactive. And then I'll move into stationary snap downs. I'll move into ball slams variations. And I, I play with ball slams very creative in trying to mimic the positions that you get in in real time. And I also like to get into accelerated decel. Um, but I do it stationary to where I accelerate when we get tall and fall first. I don't put a band on right away. I have them fall into the sprint. Or, I'm sorry, fall into the decel. Pop. And then I'll have them do that over the course of 10 yards. And then also, when I begin to build decel, before I get into high velocities, I like to build tolerance. So I will do tempo decels over the course of 100 yards. Mm-hmm. And every 10 yards, I'll have them decel. Okay, when you say decel, that's awesome. When you say decel, is that a certain number of steps? That's 10 yards distance. But when, depending on, so let's go back. When I go into the, to the falling decels, I might say that's decel to base. So I got to tell you about the position cycle. So I'll go in base. I'll go in split stance, which I call a pressure step. I'll go into a lateral power cut, which that means flip your hips and reposition yourself to go back the other way. So those are my three go-tos. Okay. Uh, when I go pressure step, I usually like to go three steps for timing and rhythm. So okay. I like to fall into it, pop, 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 timing and rhythm. When I go snap downs, it's basically just go right to the split itself. Um, so I'll go snap down, then I'll go fall into your D cell, then I'll go so go trying to jog into your D cell, and then sometimes depending on where the athlete is, I might go right over speed with a band into your D-cell while I'll pull them into those D-cells to gradually increase the intensity. Mm-hmm. That might be my volume for D-cell for that day early on because yeah. that's my foundation work. And then I'll go tempo from that point on. I don't need to do anything else because that was all those mechanical loads that I've had gone over, that's accumulative. So then I'm now I'm going to go tempo. I might say, I'm going to do 1,000 yards today. So 1,000 yards of tempo is every 10 yards, I want you to stop going to some type of D-cell. This is what we're going to do for base. We're going to go base for 100 yards up, base for 100 yards back. You're going to rest 45 seconds in between. So now I'm getting in a controlled environment. I'm getting that athlete under load, and I'm building tolerance within those tendons. And base, that's beautiful. Base is, what's the position? Be? Base, base, are even. even? Okay. Yep. And then I'll do the same thing for a pressure step, which is a split. And I'll do everything for power cut. It's the same way. Okay. And when you come to... Um, whether it be even or you're going to the, your three-step, you're saying left, right, left, right, left, right. Correct. Left, I'm right. saying up 100 yards every 10 yards, left, back, back, right, back. left. Okay. Stay and, on the same thing. And they're trying to get lower as they, they approach. No, they're staying there. Once they've gotten to where they are at that day, we'll say, okay, that's fine tension. That's fine torque. That's fine load so you can redirect yourself out. Yeah. As you improve over time, you'll be able to get the necessary depth that's needed. Yeah. But right. as they decel, as they approach their 10-yard mark. They're decelerating down. Yes, they're, they're down. dropping their center of gravity. And it's, time, it's the timing of those steps. Yeah. Yeah, so that one, two, three. Even when they're going base, I'm still thinking have them lead with the left leg versus lead with the right. So let's focus on leading with the left, going up, leading with the right, coming back. And it's even going to base. So there's always a timing mechanism as they approach that. Think bang. about that to develop that rhythm. Okay. Yes. Um, and then as you begin to, so that's all kind of living down that sagittal plane, right? Yes. As you start to peel off, right? That's the next stages because I have to go into a, before I get into any change of direction, 
um, I want to get cognitive. I want to attack that cognitive element of D cell because when I get into those higher, that's increasing velocities for me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> when I add that brain element, it's whole. It's totally different. Yeah. So once we start building tolerance, I'll slowly start bleeding in some cognitive stuff. And there's two ways I do it. I have them come to me at 10 yards and I'll point to what foot I want them to stop in. That's simple. But then I'll also put them into like a, a five to 10 yard window to where I have them do a base uh, split stance or a quarter turn or a lateral cut, depending on what I'm seeing. And I'm saying, you got six drops, you got six D cells, but you can't stop moving. You just got to hit the D cell when I say hit. You got to hit it and then retreat. When you retreat, just go back into a casual backpedal, hit it again. So you're approaching different directions of deceling. And the way I like to decel on one leg and retreat versus one leg going forward is dropping your center mass over the front leg to take the load and retreat, put the plant the back foot and start to start, instead of trying to put that back foot back behind you to stop because now you're wasting time. Yeah, yeah. You understand? So now that's teaching them how to transfer force or redistribute their weight in the right and, and, and lower their center of mass efficiently. Efficiently yeah. in real time and responding to stimuli. Yeah. More so than it's trying to anticipate everything going forward. Because DBs do it a lot. And that's why you see a lot of them spinning trying to get up out of their brakes because they're not just not, they're just not redistributing their weight correctly. Yeah. And it teaches that we do that going forward and back and it's, it's quick it's reactive reactive now the brain's speeding up now they're hitting with more force than they ever thought they could they don't even realize how much yeah. force they're hitting with and then we, we'll also turn the hip into a t-step and then we'll also go lateral and we do things because i want them to whip into that lateral cut so i'll do it out of a karaoke so i'll have cool. them do a karaoke so they can whip into that those back. hips yeah so they can really whip back into it the plant and get about come back so what's what's awesome about that last little spiel I would love to dig into T-step versus your pedal, but is they are number one, being super reactive yes. at the end. Number two, they're learning awesome mechanics of dropping center mass, mm -hmm. flipping hips. Um, and they haven't even really cut yet. No. And so that's gold to schmucks like me because I'm on this cutting restriction of that. You got to wait for the graph to start to heal up. But there's so much you can do before there's then. There's so much yeah. more. People rush their progressions because they just don't know the right. other ways of getting there. But you have to protect your athletes. You got to put your ego to the side and figure out how can I get my athletes to move and function at high velocities or progress into working within a higher velocities and develop tissue tolerance. Yeah. And re reduce the, the exposure to injury, but make them more resilient in that process. Uh, and that's to me is the goal because that's where I don't, my athlete, they was like, Dad, we, I, had, I went out and did some things today with my coach and I felt great. We didn't yeah. even do any cone drills because you know how to stop and start. Yep. You've been exposed to it and you feel good. Yep. Um, and then we layer a change of direction on that. So even once we mastered deceleration, to me, change of direction is just another variation of deceleration. It really shouldn't be separated. It should just be layered. So now I'm just change. I'm just changing angles. Yeah. That's it. You're changing. You're changing angles. You're decelerating, accelerating, decelerating, accelerating that's from it. different angles, and that's it. In a well thought out constructed well -thought program. Out program. I think too often we get to like this return to sport should look like this coming out of injury, what you just described. Too often it's like, uh, let's put, you know, lacrosse players were in Baltimore. Let's put a stick in their hands and can they do these drills with a stick? But but are you coaching the nuance of their center of mass, of the angle of That's where the money is. 
Because if you are if your hip if you aren't the proper hip height, you're not going to accelerate out well. Yeah. If you aren't the proper proper hip height, you're not going to be able to decelerate. Or shin angle, or right? Or shin angles coming out. You're not your timing and your rhythm coming out of those breaks aren't going to be efficient. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things. But the problem I feel is that people just haven't dug deep enough into, and there's not enough information out there to teach them yeah. that doesn't look intimidating. Because yeah. when they see if you look up, and I remember researching agility and deceleration, and when you would come up with stuff, man, it would be these studies, and you'd be like, I'm not reading through all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Big. Yep. So people would just say, I'm just going to guesswork and figure it out, see what I see on Instagram, and try to mimic what I that, see. Well, that's a problem. Now we're on the other end of the spectrum. I think you coming up, self-described old head, you're opening textbooks, right? And you're you're getting you're getting hit over the head with physics and biomechanics, and that's why you speak that language of, of torque, of acceleration and power. We've run from that, and now we're living in very quick modes mm -hmm. of, oh, there's a stick in our hand, so I guess that's return to sport. Or there's a basketball. And You know why? People are trying to make money, and they're trying to find their niche and where they fit. And this is a pet peeve of mine where you'll get the same two guys, a basketball coach and a football coach, do the same mobility session, and then want to say, oh, this is for basketball players. Yep. Or this is for football players. Yeah. And I'm like... And the athlete buys into that. He really believes that. I'm oh, like, he's a lacrosse guy. He's this is lacrosse. Best. So yeah. you figure, okay, to make me different as a coach, I'm just going to stick a lacrosse stick in your hand. And it's going to be, okay, now this is lacrosse specific. It's the same fundamental movement patterns. It doesn't, your training windows don't get specific till later on in the, in the phase of training. So far down. It's so far down the road. But the athlete across the board is general in regard, not the movements that we do, but specific to the athlete's movements. It's general across the board that any athlete should be able to plug and play into your program because you're teaching, you're teaching fundamentals of movement. Yeah. Yeah. You're teaching people to be athletic. Yes. Or to be fast. And that's why I wanted to open with. How do you teach speed? Because that's the ticket to winning games. That's the ticket to getting athletes back on the field, by the way. 100%. If you can make them faster, they're going to be healthier. Yeah. Their tissues are healthier. Their tendons are healthier. They can withstand. Just They're just more resilient. So that's why I loved seeing you <laughs> walk into the baseball world, especially as an Oriole yeah. fan. So just give me a quick hitter on that. What what was the biggest difference between training a major league baseball player and training a professional football player? Rotation. Okay. Rotation. How'd you, yeah. how'd you figure it out? Just looking at what athletes do on the field or in that particular realm of what they do, because that's what changes them. Linear speed, change of direction. Even football players rotate to a point. Sure. Um, but what do they spend the most time doing? Yep. Linear. Correct. Yeah. Um, Thank God I got that right. Yeah. <laughs> and baseball players, but it's the combination from linear that they go in. Because baseball players rotate linear. <laughs> Football <laughs> players, linear, possibly rotate. Yep. Depending on what has required or collision. Yep. You know, so it depends on what's required. So because they spend so much time doing one thing, how do I make the body resilient to counter counter the react counter react that so they can stay healthy? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Making sure joints are efficient within that concept so they don't get out of sequence, which begins to get them out there, get them off their timing. Yeah, um, they play a ton of volume, 
ton of volume. They're 162 games. You're not thinking about just try to play four games, fly here, four games, fly here, the, four the, games, fly here. The recovery is you know, nuts. It's nuts. So it's like they're in, a, they're in slumps because they're out of sequence because yep. they're tired. Yep. And so their brains aren't connected to their bodies anymore. So just understanding the, the, the dynamics and impact of what the sport has on the player is why I determine on how I approach that athlete in that sport, which makes me come up with the training programs that I create. Truly. Okay, number one, how much of a deep dive did you feel like you needed to do into kinematic sequencing, like the way you rotate through? Was it a lot? Was it? Think about it. It started that. Way. It started out that way. as thinking of a lot, but then it became simple because that's what we rotate as human beings. Yeah. You know, if you look at, I look at agents. I'm a big martial. Artist. I did martial arts for years, um, coming up, and one of my idols that I loved was Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee used to always talk about flow like water, be a bamboo tree in the air, all those concepts. What does that mean? It means flow. What is flow? It's rotating. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. So athleticism, people who can dance, people who can who run, who are very athletic, they flow well. They rotate well. They sequence they well. They sequence well. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That tells the story in itself. Yeah, yeah. So the better the more I can keep my athletes in tune with that, the healthier they're gonna be able to be that they can go do what they do. Yeah. That's simple. When that gets out of sequence, Usually they'll tell you. Where does that begin with pain? Yeah. Something hurts. And then you can see it because then when something hurts, the body starts down-regulating things and then the sequence starts gets disrupted and then they start, they're less efficient in time and it's off in their guard and you yep. see all this cascade of things begin to come from it. Get them healthy or get that issue solved with throwing them out of sequence. Talk to your medical team. Work together within that. Solve that problem. Keep it moving. Yeah. That's it. It. It's awesome. It's awesome to hear. It's also unbelievable that I'm sure you've worked with high-level baseball players before your most recent foray into working with major leaguers. But the fact that you said, I don't know if you heard yourself say this, but you said like, oh, when I got this baseball guy, or I was going to work with this baseball, you know, I did a deep dive into Troy. Like you're 30 years in, dude. <laughs> a lot of 30, a lot of guys with 30 years under their belt, they're not doing deep dives into crap. So good on you for jumping into that. That's a lesson in and of itself. Dude, that's this whole podcast. You've been at this goddamn game for 30 years and you're still trying to get better. I've met therapists that are at this game for four years and they're like, oh, I'm burnt out or uh, you know, I need this in order to continue to lock in. 30 years in, you're passionate about human movement and you're humble enough to say, I know there's something I gotta learn. That's, that's the lesson that Troy's leaving us with today. So, hold on. Do you agree with that? I agree. Okay, okay. So you're looking at me like this guy. I agree with that. I okay. agree with that. Okay. Let's move into our lightning round. I could talk to you forever, but let's move into our lightning round. You ready? Yeah. Quick responses, Troy. Quick responses. You ready? Yeah. Who's the best athlete you ever worked with? Oh, shit. Quick responses, Troy. <laughs> um, uh, hockey player. I'm brain freeze. Couldn't have been that Stuck. good. Oh my God, he's gonna kill me too. I can't think. Mm -hmm. he's, and you know he's listening. I'm he's sure that guy's gonna kill me. I'm gonna brain freeze. I'm on this. I'm on a spot right now. Why was he the best athlete? Because he moved extremely well. He 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 can pick up things in real time like that. You show him one time, it's done. He's gonna create. He's gonna just do it exactly the way you do it. But it's effortless. Yeah. It's effortless. Sign of a good athlete. Yeah. Yeah, he's Canadian. He's Canadian. Um, okay, fine. Who's the best NFL athlete you've ever worked with? 
best NFL athlete, and he would put me on the spot because these guys are going to hear this. And they, oh, okay. They're gonna like I always say, no one's listening. Oh, I tell you, right. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Don't guy, say Blake Countess. No, that guy on the board right there is one of the best athletes I've ever worked with. You know why? Because he did things extremely well. All these, same concept, same thought process. Tell him to do it. Perfect. Mimics it to a T. Promise you that. And it's funny you ask me that, and his jersey is right there. And that's the truth. What? The, okay. So I'll tell you my favorite athlete. I wonder if I've said it on this pod before. The best athlete that I've worked with, there are two dudes. One dude is a guy named Sam Cook, who's a punter with probably the best arm that the Ravens have ever had. Mm. And all he did was make his living with his right foot. And he was a linebacker when he went to college. So, like, put all those things together. How insane is that? And the nicest guy I've ever met. But, yeah, a close second is a guy who never – I don't think he ever made the Ravens active roster, a guy named Tim White, who dude couldn't put his heels on the ground because his goddamn Achilles were so tight, but they were just springs. And he's a guy who I think he's in the CFL now, but didn't even train for it and came in sixth in the country in the – long jump or something like almost made the goddamn olympic wow. team yeah it's crazy so i would put those two did you think of the hockey player yet no I'm sorry. oh my god okay fine next question oh, man. Take ready it what's the toughest position in sports it's a position where you got to react in a short areas meaning a goalie a soccer uh uh a hockey um, but hockey. they don't have to be fast they don't have to be fast but they got a brain speed the brain speed and things you react to in real time see somebody in open field you got time to process because you're using leverage and you're, you're processing the field. You understand the spacing on the field. Mm-hmm. You got room to process information. But somebody's throwing something at you 100 miles an hour. You don't have no time. You got to react to that. And as goalies got it the worst because these dudes are coming at the ball with them full speed. And they got to protect this big, massive, giant, giant. giant net. You yep. got to dive and react. And if you go the wrong way, they make you look horrible. You ever train any of them? Yes. And a female, she played for Michigan. She was a beast. She Love was it. a goalie. Very reactive. I mean, she's very fearless. Yeah. But it was a tough position to play. Go blue. A fun, a fun position to, to rehab or train, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. they have to move laterally they insanely laterally quickly. Insane. They have to make awesome decisions. Mm-hmm. I love their depth perception because, number one, you know that ball ain't coming straight. No. So they have to understand, like, the way it's approaching them. Mm-hmm. Number two is as the attacker is coming forward with the ball, they're making this. When do I come off that line? When do I come off that line attack and how am I approaching them and cutting down that angle? You, you're stating the case for me. Love it. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Um, used to be a goalie. No. Just, uh, okay. Is that what it was? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, athlete that you've never worked with that you would love to have a beer with. Dead or alive. Yes. Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. And if it was... And if it wasn't Bruce Lee, because I would call him an actor, if but okay. If it wasn't Bruce Lee, yeah, because he, he, before he was an actor, he was a martial artist. Okay, I don't doubt that. Okay. Before, if it wasn't Bruce Lee, then it would probably be, believe it or not, because I grew up in Oreo. Yeah. Hell. And I was crazy about this guy. He's my, and I don't get starstruck often, but this guy just always. Let me guess. Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray. Yes. Yes. There's something about him. It's the Eddie, chops. Man. Yeah, it's the chops, man. That, he used to sit back there. Oh, just, what man. a freaking badass. Oh, he was, man. Eddie was, man. Just, when Eddie would come up the bat, bro, I stopped everything I was doing. He was freaking magic. Um, and he, was, he wasn't a bad first baseman. Nah. And just the fact that he came back here, I think he hit his 500th he while did. he was here. He did. Uh, there, just, there's a lot of, and I just loved 
what an asshole he was to the press. I love that. <laughs> he just like he just knew bounds. Okay, I'm with you. I, I totally hear that. Okay, what's your favorite thing about Baltimore? Crabs. Good answer. Never had one in my entire life. Uh, what, are you, what are you waiting for? It's a kosher thing. Uh, we don't kosher crabs. No such thing, you dude. Can't. No. They're, oh they're, man, they're, they're bottom feeders. They're bottom feeders. Yeah. yeah so yeah. lived in Baltimore my whole life. Jeez. Never a crab. Are they awesome? Dude, lobster looks better. Lobster looks better, but sometimes lobster it just it's not as consistent as the crab. What about the tail? Dude, what about the tail? Of the lobster? Yeah. It's gotta be cooked right. That, that, it was so just, much, what about so but, anything in butter sauce? Is that a thing? You put them in butter sauce? I did a little bit. It's the obey that does it all, and it's the way it's cooked in the steam and the obey that thing comes out perfect. Some people use preferred butter sauce, some don't. Lobster, the reason why lobster's a problem for me, I like lobster, but I always, no one cooks it consistent. Because I guess it's difficult. It is difficult. Okay, where's the best place in Baltimore to get a crab? I would say Sea Pride off Liberty Road. <laughs> I love it, Liberty Road. Okay, crab or crab cake? Crab cakes. Just cakes? Just the cakes. You're not cracking that thing? Just the cakes. Okay, so when you say crab meat, period, crab. Okay. And but it's got to be cooked Baltimore style. Which means? Means the way they prepare it with the obey and how we approach it is different. Now you know me being in Florida, they they what have they Maryland crab cakes on everything, and, and I'm like, this ain't I'm Maryland. From Maryland, fam, is this real Maryland crab cakes? No, sir, it's not. I'm like, that's what I thought. Take it off your menu. Troy, you should be on the goddamn radio. Forget this training <laughs> thing. I'll listen to this forever. Okay, last but not least. What's that? Your favorite thing about your daughter, Raquel. She loves me. Dude, good. Okay, but that's not your favorite thing about her. <laughs> she was the best athlete in the family. My boy's going to be pissed. Good me. answer. <laughs> Listen, I've worked with two of, two of your kin. She's a hell of an athlete. Man, yeah. And a hell of great. a person. And she obviously comes by it honestly. So, Troy, thanks for being here. Can you tell everyone listening what you got coming up and how they can follow and learn from you? I have an education system coming up. Um, I'm release, releasing the theme of creating the ultimate athlete and going over a lot of the progressions and concepts on how we approach things that's been successful successful for us over time. Um, you're talking 30 plus years of research and talking to people beside that I looked up to that gave me guidance and putting it all into one place so it makes it easier for you just to approach training the athlete. That's the goal of it because we're saturated in our community in regards to the information. Um, we're going to be releasing that in the fall. Hell yeah. We have some collaborations coming up with some companies around the world that help solve puzzles and speed training. Um, I'm going to wait to announce that, but cool. you can check that on my Instagram at Coach Troy or Coach Troy underscore IG. You know, I'm old, so I just this an old head. OG stuff, but I know it's Coach Troy Jones underscore. We'll I put believe. it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> and then my website is CoachTroyJones.com. Um, you can find out more information about me and how, you know, some of the, some of the athletes that I've worked with and some of the things I've done in the past. And um, thank you for having me. I'm oh, dude, you, you've done just awesome stuff for the field. You've been a mentor and a friend to me. So I appreciate everything you've done for me. And man, every athlete I work with in Baltimore has worked with Troy Jones, has heard of Troy Jones. If they haven't worked with him, their coach has worked with him and learned from him. So, you're doing great stuff. This podcast is 
evidence of it because you've taught me a tremendous amount just in our time together today. I look forward to doing it again. Yeah, we need to do this again. Oh, uh, what a freaking pleasure. Might have been my favorite. Oh, really? That's saying a lot, man. I've only done two of these. Oh, no, shit. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to mention, um, I also I can be found. I'm at House of Athlete in Western Florida. A um, mecca. It's, it's, it's a great place. Probably one of the best facilities when you walk in the door you've ever seen. So pay us a visit when you get a chance. We have a location in Western Florida and a location in Tampa, Florida. Hell yeah. Troy, appreciate you dearly, man. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me, brother.